Welcome to the Business Done Differently podcast, where we believe whatever's normal, do the exact opposite, and that standing out is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Jesse Cole, and it's showtime. I'm a big fan of today's guest. David Meerman Scott has written 11 books, including The New Rules of Marketing and PR and Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead. Now he's written the book on my favorite subject in the world, creating fans. His book, Fanography, is a game changer. And I'm fired up to welcome you to the show today, David. Thanks so much, Jesse. I'm really, really excited to be here because you have done some amazing, amazing things around fandom. And it's just a pleasure to see what you've been able to accomplish. Well, thank you. It took a lot of inspiration from you, your book, from starting out, I mean, from Marketing Lessons, The Grateful Dead, New Rules, and now this one. You're, we're speaking the same language, which <laughs> I love. And I think everyone should be speaking the same language, talking about fans and not just talking about customers. And I haven't really ever asked this question, but I'm, I'm intrigued. What is your definition of a fan? So people have asked me that, and I've struggled with it, actually. But I think that the difference between somebody who has sort of a hobby and somebody who has a fandom, is that with a fandom, you're eager to share it with other people. So what's interesting around what you're doing is that as soon as people decide that they're going to go from being somebody who sees the team from afar to being buying a ticket and actually going to the stadium, that's when they become a fan. Mm, Uh, When they come back again and want to go to another game, they become a fan. It's when they are beginning to do something with other people. So I can listen to a band and like them, but as soon as I decide to buy a ticket and go there and be around other people, that's when I'm a fan. Yes. So about being around other people and then sharing it. I think that's that's one of the most powerful. I think that's right. I think that's right. That's kind of where I've come down because people have said to me, David, you know, my hobby is knitting. Am I a fan of knitting? And I said, well, do you knit with other people or do you go to knitting conventions or do you go to the knitting store and kibitz with all of the other knitters in there? Yes, then you're a fan of knitting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think the way we look at it is, yeah, what do fans have in common? They're passionate about something. They're enthusiastic. They're loyal. They share it with others. And what we've learned is that we went from marketing like crazy and failing to now we spend $0 marketing and every game sold out. And it's because fans are spreading the word with other potential fans. Yes. So I think we're probably aligned in terms of our definition. Yeah. And then fanocracy, you do have a definition for fanocracy. Yeah, I mean, fanocracy is really when an organization person puts the needs of their fans ahead of everything else. So it's not about just making money. It's not about just creating a product or service. It's about putting their customers ahead of everything else. And that's what you do, isn't it? We're trying. We're trying to learn every day. I think it's a conversation that needs to be had with more people. You may have amount of customers, but the future of work is how many fans you have, not by how many customers you have. Because customers, yeah, come and go. Fans, they stay with you. I think that's absolutely right. And then the other thing fans do is they tell other people. They share on social networks. They, you know, at a cocktail party, they'll say, hey, this is like the coolest thing I've ever seen. You should check it out. Or this is my favorite band. Or I just read this amazing book. I can't wait to read other books by this author. Yes. Um, So yeah, I think that once you transcend from selling mere products and services to developing fans, your business can come alive. A hundred percent. 
I, I think you got a huge interest in live music, live bands. Mm-hmm. And I think it's great for people to put that perspective. And I'd love to kind of share, like, what can we learn from live bands? Because people, they don't realize it, but people are so passionate about music and the live experience. Tell me about your personal story. I've heard a little bit of it, but I think it's great for the listeners. Yeah, I'm a huge geek about live music. I saw my first live shows when I was 15 years old. That was actually quite a few years ago. I've now seen, I have a spreadsheet, 804 live shows, (laughs) including 75 Grateful Dead concerts. I've seen a few epic shows, just happened to stumble into some epic shows. When I was 15 years old, the Ramones played my high school for 100 years, (laughs) which is kind of crazy. Wow. In on September 23rd, 1980, I was a student at Kenyon College in Ohio. My buddies and I road tripped to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to the Stanley Theater to see Bob Marley. And it turns out it was Bob Marley's last concert. Wow. And I was the only photographer, only person known to have shown to taken photographs at Bob Marley's last concert. Wow. I'm just showing a picture that unfortunately the rest of the audience can see over there next to the door. Yes. And my photographs have become historic because they're the only known visual record of Bob Marley's last concert. They were used for about five minutes in the Marley documentary. Um, The Marley family has copies of the photos, um, books, magazines, whatever, have have used these photos because I stumbled into history as a teenager. And I don't know what possessed me to want to bring a camera to the show. I borrowed the yearbook photographer's camera. <laughs> and I'd never done that before and never done that since. Of course, now we all have iPhones and, and whatnot in our pockets. But at that time, it was really rare to have a, a camera at a show. So I was just really lucky to capture that moment. Yeah. So you fell in love with live music. And I think one thing about it, it's so memorable. I mean, I remember my dad took me to the Walden Woods concert back in the day with Aerosmith, Don Henley, and Elton John, and Jimmy Buffett. And I was blown away. And I'll never forget that. And it's the memorable experience, but you know, obviously the live music going to it, but what is it that bands do? I know obviously Grateful Dead's a great example and you're a big fan, but what can we take from what live bands are doing well that we can put into organizations? So let's first look at it from the perspective of the fan. And so my daughter and I, the book that we wrote called Fanocracy, I wrote with my daughter. She's now 27, but when, when we embarked on the project, she was 21 years old. And we really wanted to look at the neuroscience aspect of how and why somebody becomes a fan. What's actually going on in our brains Mm. when we become a fan of something? Because I started from the perspective of the Grateful Dead. I've seen 75 Grateful Dead concerts. And going to a Grateful Dead concert is among the most important things in my life. And just in 2019, last year, I went to seven Grateful Dead concerts, which I know is ridiculous, but, <laughs> and they actually now are touring under the name Dead and Company, which they've done a different name since Jerry Garcia's death. And John Mayer now plays the Jerry Garcia role. But what we learned when we dug into the neuroscience, and my daughter Reiko graduated with a neuroscience degree from Columbia University, and we've tapped a bunch of well-known PhDs in neuroscience, is that we humans are hardwired to want to be part of a tribe of like-minded people. And the reason for that is because when we're part of our tribe, we're safe and we're comfortable Mm -hmm. and we feel secure. 
And that goes back tens of thousands of years of human history because, you know, if you're out on the plains running around with your tribe, you felt comfortable. But as soon as you were not in your tribe, you felt vulnerable. And that's still true of us today, even though we're modern humans. And one neuroscientist actually identified the different levels of, he called it proximity, which is how close you are to another human being. And he identified, his name is Edward T. Hall, identified so-called public space further than 12 feet away. And then what he called social space, which is from 12 feet to four feet, and then personal space, which is four feet or closer. And the closer you get to someone, the more powerful the, the human emotions are that are shared, either in the positive way. So if you're with your tribe and you're in social space or personal space, never mind the COVID-19 situation going on right now, but normally mm-hmm. when you're with your, per- your tribe, you feel safe and comfortable and very positive human emotions. When you're not with your tribe and you're with people you don't know, for example, if you step into a crowded elevator, you can feel very negative emotions because your brain tells you, danger, 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 these people are not part of my tribe. Now, I know you asked me a simple question, which I'm doing a roundabout way of getting an answer to. So that's how we feel Mm. as fans when we go to a live music show. So what musicians can do and what concert promoters can do is what can you do to create a tribe and become part of a tribe? So in the case of the live music shows that I go to, if there's sort of calls and responses that the musician, that the artist can do, that can be really powerful. In fact, I've learned that technique myself because I give live, and I know you do too, give live speeches around the world. And I've developed some call and response ways that I get my audience to Mm. participate as part of a tribe, just the way that I do. And somebody who goes to a live event, you know, they're all wearing the badge of the live event. They're part of a tribe too. So it's very similar. A band that plays their familiar songs and doesn't just insist on playing their new music can be very powerful because the tribe wants to hear that older music. Mm a band that treats its fans with great respect and understands that they're there out of a choice can be very powerful as well. The Grateful Dead in particular did one thing, well, they did many things, but one thing that I find remarkable, which is they allowed their fans to record the concerts, Mm -hmm. which no other band did. You know, if you went to any other show, whether it's Rolling Stones or Pink Floyd or whoever from that era, you were not allowed to record the concerts. It even said so on the ticket. But the Grateful Dead said, sure, why not? You can record our music. Because they recognized that if the fans wanted to record, and then they would share that music, initially it was in the form of cassette tapes and later on MP3 files, that that was a good thing for the community, a good thing to build fans. So you asked me a simple question. I, ran, I ranted for 10 minutes, but, <laughs> but it really is, the bottom line is, it's about a true human connection yes. between a band and the fans or a true human connection between a sports team and its fans or a true human connection between any artist and their fans. I love it. And you know, you look at bands that have followed suit, like Dave Matthews Band, and they let everyone record. And why today even, you don't even know the greatest Dave Matthews song, but they're selling out arenas left and right. Yeah. It's You allow your people to be a part of something and share it. And there were some things in there that was great. 
the proximity, but also the call and responses. And I think about the rituals. You know, what rituals does your company have that people yes. be a part of? You know, before every game, we get a baby six months old and we put them in a baby costume and at home play with all the players with their hands up in the air. We play not, uh, Circle Life, Nasavania, and the whole <laughs> stadium, 4,000 people are lifting their arms up towards the banana baby. That's just a ritual. And now it, you feel like you're a part of something. And, yeah. and I love this too, because you're talking about speakers. One of the big promotions we do is Hey Baby, where everyone, the players get in the dugout and the whole stadium is doing Hey Baby. In the middle of my speech, the second inning stretch, the whole crowd, I have them do this and everyone is dancing and singing and they yeah. feel like they're yeah. a part of something unintentional. But yes, you want to feel like you belong. That's right. It's, it's so key. And you said the other thing I love, the proximity to the customers. And you give the example about chamber magic in the book. Yes. I love this. How do we get closer? Why do we give people uh, tickets to, or opportunities to sit in the dugout with the players and to sit in the bullpen with the players and go in the, in the locker rooms? That proximity is everything. Tell us a little bit about the chamber magic and how companies can use that. Yeah, no, it's, we found this to be really, really important. So as we're recording this podcast, of course, we're in the throes of this, the virus and everyone's telling us not to get close to yes. other human beings. So for this very short period of time, you don't want to do this. But once things start to clear up, what's really important to recognize is that we humans are hardwired to have very strong reactions to people who are part of our tribe when they get close to us. So in your case, with the team, having fans interact in close personal space within four feet of players, really important stuff. And that's what this magician named Steve Cohen has done. And Steve is now celebrating. He just sent me an email actually two days ago. He's <laughs> celebrating his 20th anniversary. It's remarkable. 20 years doing the same show in the same place in New York City, which is absolutely remarkable. Now, he does a chamber magic show. It's like an old school magic show. He only sells 65 tickets. Does I think he does five shows every weekend, and it's only on the weekends. And so what he does is make sure that every single member of the audience, all 65 people, have an opportunity to be within his personal space, so within about four feet of him. So the front row naturally is close to him because he does his shows in a really beautiful old room of gilded ceilings and nice chairs and everyone comes dressed in their finery, coat and tie and, and so on. And so what to do about people in the back row? And he makes sure to make a point of inviting people from the back rows to come up to the stage and be around him when he's doing close magic, like card tricks and so on. So that over the course of the two-hour show, everybody in the audience has a chance to be in close physical proximity with him, the star of the show. And that's a remarkable thing because our brains are hardwired for us to have a very strong relationship with those people who we trust it doesn't work so well if you don't trust someone already, but those who we trust, who get, we get in close physical proximity with, um, that's a very, very, very powerful thing. I love and it. And so many businesses can try to build that in, like you've managed to build that in with the team. And in my case, as a public speaker, I make sure that after every speech, I have a chance to pose for a selfie or sign books with every single person who wants to do that. And in some cases, 
if there's a few thousand people in the audience, that might take an hour or two, but I'm happy to do it. I also make a point of coming down from the stage and actually going into the audience a couple of times during my presentation. And now I recognize I can't be within four feet of every single one of the people in the audience, but I can be close to several of those people. And that's really a powerful thing as well. So what does that mean for a business? Well, can you have a client conference? Can you meet your customers in their offices? Can you invite them to lunch? And can you do other things to get in close physical proximity with people? Yeah, I love it. And it goes into kind of which we go the breakdown, the barriers, but uh, that's kind of what it, what's happening. You know, it's very easy to think the entertainment field. Like, yes, like during our games, our players go into the crowd and deliver roses to little girls. Yes, our players go on dates with fans during the games. They can do all that. But how does that work in a business? But you mentioned something that I think is the most powerful thing that's still happening. Selfies. I didn't realize this. But like, I go in the crowd and just do selfies for two innings. Fans, where, where can I get the selfie? Where can I yeah. see it? And it's like this big deal. I'm like, it's just a selfie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, can you take selfies with your customers? Go to them and say, hey, let's do some selfies together. Yeah. It's, that's not just a picture from distant. You're a part of something together. Every business should be doing selfies. Well, what's so, here's what's interesting about the selfie is we really dug into, again, the neuroscience about what's going on with the selfies. So we talked about the neuroscience of physical proximity, and that's something that's hardwired in our brain. It's non-negotiable, really. We humans are hardwired to be safe and comfortable when we're with our tribe of people, and we're hardwired to be uncomfortable if we're close to people who are not part of our tribe. And we talked about that. But sometimes people say to me, but David, you know, my business doesn't lend itself to getting close physically to people. Or we might be in a situation as we're in right now as we're recording this where because of this pandemic, they're saying don't get close to people because you don't want to spread the virus. So there's something called mirror neurons. Mirror neurons are part of our brains that fire when we see somebody do something or even hear somebody do something and our brains fire as if we're doing that ourselves, which I'm going to demonstrate. So you're actually going to see it. <laughs> we're looking at a video, but everyone else will be able to hear me do this. I'm actually holding up a lemon and a slice of lemon right now. And if I take a bite of this lemon, <laughs> wow, it's, it's really powerful to bite into a lemon. My, my eyes close. My eyes are actually starting to water a little bit. My mouth puckers mm. up and, and my saliva glands are firing. And I can really taste the strong taste mm -hmm. of lemon as I bite into this. And oh my gosh, my lemon matches your outfit. By <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but as I take a bite of a lemon, my brain is firing like crazy. But every single person who's listening to this, your brain is firing too. Just by listening to me talk about biting into a lemon and Jesse, your brain too is firing probably even a bit more so because yeah. through the video that we're shooting, you were able to see me pull out that lemon and take a bite. Now, did you feel the lemon, by the way, Jess? <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah, we, we all, I mean, immediately start thinking about that. It's crazy, right? So what's happening is our brain is firing as if we were biting that lemon too. Now, here's what the, why this is important for something like a selfie or for shooting video in any business is because our brains mirror neurons fire when we see a video or a photograph of somebody as if we're actually standing next to them. So it's a way to have virtual proximity with people. 
And it's actually a remarkable thing that, which actually explains why you think you know a movie star. So if you're watching a movie, you know intellectually that there's no way that you know that person. You have never met that movie star. You know that intellectually. But your brain signals to you that you actually know that movie star personally, that you're friends with that movie star, that you're part of the same tribe, because your brain says to you, you've been in close physical proximity with them, even though intellectually you know you haven't. So the idea of a selfie is really interesting because what's happening there is even though you're not part of that, you don't know that person necessarily, you see that photograph and you say, wow, that's interesting. I'm personal friends with the person who took that selfie, even though you know you're not. So that selfies get tons of social engagement for that particular reason. So I think it's very cool that you go out into your audience and take selfies because Every one of those is an artifact of their time having just met you, which then they may share on their social media. And when they do so, the people who see those photographs say, I have met Jesse and I have met that other person myself because intellectually they know they haven't, but their brains tell them they have. The same thing is true of using video. And I've been advising lots and lots of people over the last few weeks because of this virus that The use of video right now is a really interesting opportunity because our brains tell us that we're part of the same, in the same room as the person who's shooting that video. If you crop it as if you're about four feet away, you look directly at the camera, you assume a natural uh, kind of tone and position looking directly at the camera, that's a really, really powerful thing. So you're saying the tighter the shot is much better, obviously, in video because you can feel closer proximity. Well, about four feet is called personal space. It's cocktail party distance. Okay. That's a a very comfortable distance. So depending on whether there's a zoom on the camera or not, it's the placement of the camera may or may not be about four feet away. But four feet away is ideal in terms of the feeling of that camera. So as we're shooting this little video right now, it's about four feet. You know, I I feel as though you and I are actually sitting down talking to one another as opposed to thousands of miles away. Yeah. I think it's so great when you're talking about this, because from a video perspective, I'm proud of our team, but you got to think about how do people know the people behind the brand? People don't necessarily buy the logos. They're buying the connection to the people behind the brand. And something that our team, you've mentioned the virus and we talked about this later, but our team said, all right, what can we do now? Today, they filmed up our own mock parade with our people. Tomorrow, they're filming the Bananas Masters where we're playing golf inside the stadium and doing that. Then they're doing March Badness where we're playing basketball and we're filming it just to show us kind of having fun. There's no direct ROI there, but maybe our fans will connect. We had thousands of people watch a mock parade with us and our characters around our field today. Like, but again, I think that's part of it. Like, Do things to build human connection. And you're right. It doesn't always have to be in person. You can build it even on a video screen. Yes, absolutely. You can build it on a video screen. And so many companies out there, when they think video, they think that you have to spend a crap load of money. You have to have the professionals come in. You have to have lighting. You have to have makeup. You don't. You can just use your, the camera that's in your pocket already in your phone. And so this is just a really powerful way to build fans. And what I love about the research that my daughter and I did is that as I mentioned earlier, it's hardwired. It is part of who we are as humans to react to that. 
And when you become a fan of a rock band, you become a fan of an author, you become a fan of a sports team, and you can watch a video, that's a really powerful, really powerful thing, especially if the people who are creating that video understand that if you do have some of these shots around four feet or so from the camera, that can be really powerful. I think some of these examples are great. You mentioned the restaurant in Boston. Talking about breaking down the barriers. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you briefly, I don't even know how to pronounce that restaurant, um, but can Le you briefly? Spallier. <laughs> Spallier, yes. Yeah. What they did was really cool. Share your experience there and maybe how that can relate to other businesses. Yeah. So the idea of breaking down barriers is to understand in your business, what are the things that you can possibly do to allow your customers to see something kind of behind the scenes that will turn them into a fan. So what La Spalier restaurant does is they have one table in the kitchen, literally in the kitchen. And so there's however many tables, I'll, I'll call it 50, I don't know how many there are in the dining room, but they have one table actually in the kitchen. And my daughter and my wife and I went and had a meal there. And it was unbelievable because you're in the thick of the kitchen and they're cooking the food right there with you to be able to see it. And you can smell it and you can hear it and witness what's going on all around you. And you instantly are part of something that the average customer would never, ever see. And not only do you see it, but you're actually a part of it for three hours or however long we were there. And the different chefs come and explain what they're doing. Another great example of that is a company called Grain Surfboards. Mm -hmm. And Grain Surfboards is a company in York, Maine that makes wooden surfboards. And what's really cool about them is, yes, you can order a surfboard that's already made. A couple thousand dollars, you can buy a wooden surfboard. But they also have a build-your-own-surfboard class that you can take if you go to the factory in York, Maine. And it takes four days, and they teach you everything you need to know to build your own surfboard, which you do right there in their factory together with the artisans that build those surfboards. And so that is something that's kind of remarkable because they're sharing their proprietary building techniques for how they build those surfboards. And it's a technique that they invented because you can't just take a piece of wood and make it a surfboard shape. It's too heavy. So it's a boat building technique where it's hollow ribs that are then laid over the top of the ribs are other pieces of wood. And then they have a special way that they keep the air inside of the hollow surfboard so that it doesn't overheat. Because if it did, it would bust the board like a balloon. Um, so it's a really proprietary technique. And they could have said, oh, no, 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 we're not going to show you how we do this yes. because it's proprietary. But instead they said, sure, come on down. We'll show you everything we know. And now there's people like me who I've done this twice now, people like me who have built these surfboards and just love that they have allowed people to become part of what they're doing. And you do that too. I mean, how crazy is it that a fan can go into the dugout? You know, it's like, what are the sacred places in a ball club that fans never see, at least never see up close? And 
the dugout and the bullpen and the locker room are three that come to mind. And those are three places that you've opened up, right? So this idea is something that any organization can try to figure out in their own world is what are the things that we could open up that typically aren't opened up that use that as a way to build fans? Yeah. What is your behind the scenes VIP experience? You know, and especially if you're retail, you look at everything as points of sale. We've changed our mindset to points of experience. So every place that we sell food, we drink, what's the performance that's going on? And I love the behind the scenes because I noticed and subconsciously I didn't realize when we took fans behind the scenes before the game and they got to go on the field and watch the players do their dance rehearsals, like they're like, I'm watching players do dance rehearsals right now. (laughs) They would talk about it like crazy because they're like, I didn't even know this was happening. And then they see it happen and during the game later where they nailed the dance, they're like, this is how it all came together. Yeah. And I think it's very, but what is your behind the scenes VIP experience that only you get to see that maybe you take for granted because you see it all the time and someone else values? Yeah. And I think about it in my own world and I should probably even do more of it myself. Before a big speech, I often do a little sound check. And to me, it's no big deal, but you know, maybe one of my fans would be interested in coming on this up onto the stage with me. Yeah. See what it's like to go through a little sound check. Um, I know in my case, as a fan of live music, I've been invited to maybe a dozen different sound checks of different bands. Awesome. And most recently, the one I remember distinctly because it was so cool is Dead and Company, Grateful Dead invited me to a sound check in New York City at City Field. There were only four people at that sound check. Um, the entire city field where the New York Mets play and only four people were able to be at that sound check and I was one of them. And it cost them nothing. It It cost cost them them nothing. nothing. And so for an hour, I was one of four people who were there, you know, obviously knew someone to get me in, but it was a remarkable experience. And so all of us have an opportunity to think about, can the CEO uh, broadcast something on video for fans? Can you witness the product managers having a discussion about the next product design, all sorts of different things that you could consider depending on what your business is in terms of allowing people to see behind the scenes. Yeah. And if you're filming, if you're doing filming in your office, can they actually come and be watch you actually film something from behind the camera? I mean, everyone, there's so many opportunities. And I think what's great is we're all talking about experience. Everything is about the experience. And I think there was one point in your book, you talk about build your own experience. And I loved Harmony, hearing about that. I never knew that existed. And it made me start thinking, how can fans decide the lineups, the everything that's happening during the games? So can you share Harmony? That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it from the perspective of putting together a lineup. Oh, yeah. But yeah, so Harmony is an app that musicians can connect with their fans. And then fans using the app can request what songs that the band will play at a particular show. So let's say, for example, Jack White is coming to Boston where I live and I'm going to go to the show. I can use Harmony to request a couple of different songs that Jack White will play once he comes to Boston. And so what's really interesting about Harmony and the reason it works is because when a band like Jack White will sell tickets, they typically will sell through something like Ticketmaster. And Ticketmaster doesn't share the data about who the fans are with the band. The band has no idea who's in the audience if the tickets were purchased from Ticketmaster because Ticketmaster owns the email addresses of those people. And so how does a band like Jack White go from the anonymous people in the audience who bought through Ticketmaster to having those people become 
a fan of Jack White and Jack White know who those people are. Well, you can sign up for the email list at the merch table. You can buy something and sign up that way. Or you can use Harmony ahead of the show, which you have to register and give your email address for. And then you request the songs that Jack White will play. And then that data of who the people who made those requests are, which are the biggest fans of Jack White, by the way, that data then gets circulated back to Jack White. And now they know the 100 or 200 people who have used Harmony, what those email addresses are, which they can then add to their own database. So it's a really interesting and clever system, both for the fans and for the band, to be able to understand who are the different people who are going, and then the fans have the benefit of being able to choose the songs. I love it. So how can you let your customers become fans by choosing their experience? And I think about that. We just surprised our whole staff with a trip to Disney before all the virus, so we were lucky. And they got so exciting. Oh, I'll go to this show then. Then I'm going to do the fast pass here. And it was the crafting of the experience that was half of the excitement. So again, I know it's tough if you're a bank, if you're an insurance lender, if you're so-and-so, But how do you give your fans the chance to choose or have decision-making to control what happens next? I think even just like, for instance, we've looked at our fans chose the name of the team, the mascot. They choose our t-shirts. They choose our jerseys. And then next, like we said, could they do the lineups, the music, the promotions we're doing, all everything. I just think that gives you ownership and a brand. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. And every one of those things can either become a contest or it can become a prize or it can become an experience that can be offered. And that becomes really, really cool, really, really interesting. And you know, a lot of people will tell me, but my business doesn't lend itself to that. I don't own a sports team. I'm not a rock band. (laughs) But the truth is that every organization can think about how they can provide some kind of experience to people. Because there's always going to be an opportunity, if you're clever, to think of that experience. So back to the restaurant where we started this discussion, yeah, they've got 60 tables out in the dining room. But, you know, someone clever said, what happens if we put a table in the kitchen? What should we do that? And my mother turned 85 years old a couple of weeks ago. I have two brothers. My brothers and I decided to take my mother out for her birthday. And so my brother, he lives in Connecticut, which is near where my mother lived. He was thinking to himself, what would be a great experience, right? There's that word again. What would be a great experience for our mother that she would remember. And there's one particular restaurant that has one table inside of the wine cellar. And so it's in the basement. You have to go through down these rickety stairs and you end up in the wine, literally in the wine cellar, wine all around you. And there's one table down there and that's what we booked. And I was just actually surprised for her mom. She didn't know it was going to go on. And we surprised her and it was a great experience. And who would have thought to put a table in the basement, but it worked and it was great. I love it. I love it. All right. We're going to get to a few games, but I want a few quotes that you said. I love this. Always be consumer focused. You wrote focused on product alone results in a race to the bottom. Your relationship with your customer starts with your curiosity about them. Yeah. Can you share maybe one little thing someone could do to have more curiosity about their customers? Oh my gosh. I mean, what I think the biggest mistake that companies make, you know, people ask me this sometimes, what are the biggest mistakes that companies make? And that is focusing way too much on your product or service and not focusing enough on your customers or as I would call them, your fans. And so if you're curious about your fans, if you're curious about the things that they're interested in, that will allow you to craft something 
that's way more interesting than if you're just putting out a product. Yes. And it's that question asking like, what would your fans want? Put yourself in the fan shoes. And yeah. you know, we do that. We go undercover fan every night. Someone goes and parks with the fans. We line with the fans. We sit with the fans. We, we talk to the fans. I mean, I'll sit there incognito asking stuff. Hey, have you been to a game before? What, what's yeah. the best part? And you oh, ask so these cool. questions and you learn from it. And I love that. And that's really cool. Yeah. We've learned a lot from it. So <laughs> that's why I find Und- Undercover fan. Yes. <laughs> Undercover fan, and every night someone on our staff does it. So we have uh, so we have about thirty nights of notes, and we come back and we make decisions by it. And that's awesome. Yeah, so that's fun. It's, it's like another thing too. I love give without wanting anything in return. This so yeah. many people struggle with. You wrote free content with strings attached feels like coercion, while yeah. great content given freely attracts loyal fans. Yeah, and so this I learned from the Grateful Dead. We talked about this yes. at the top of the show where the Grateful Dead allowed fans to record their concerts and every other band did. They were giving something away with no expectation of anything in return. What so many organizations do is the opposite. And I think about the best example of that are the companies that produce something like a white paper or an ebook, which they offer for free on their website. So if it's truly for free it means you'd have no registration to get that piece of content. Yet what most companies do is they require that you have to give an email address in order to get that piece of content, that white paper, that ebook, whatever it is. It's not providing free content. That's coercion. Mm -hmm. You're coercing people to get that content by requiring that they fill out a form. 100%, 100%. I think it's just something we need to think about. What are you doing? Are you trying to get immediate more fans, more dollars? Or are you just trying to do something that's actually best for people? And I think that's yeah. why some of the Facebook Lives, hey, we just do them for fun. You know, and if people yes. like them, they like them. No question about it. And you know, that, that's what a podcast is, right? That's what you're doing right now. I mean, you are providing a gift for people. The gift is, hey, I'm going to have some interesting people that I'm going to talk to and I'm going to let you listen in for 45 minutes or an hour to these interesting conversations. And I'm not going to try to sell you something. I'm not going to make you register. I'm not going to charge you money. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm hopeful that this will be valuable for you. And it's exactly what you're doing right now, Jesse. And not enough people think that way. So many organizations think that every single thing they do needs to be part of a transaction. Oh, yeah. But it doesn't. No, it's just playing the long game. All right, you ready for a couple of games? Yeah. All right, so you, you can start either Truth and Dare or the Fan Showdown. Which one do you want first? You choose. All right, we're going to go Fan Showdown. I'm going to name kind of an industry and maybe name one thing that they could do to create some more fans. Okay. All right, let's start with a realtor. Realtors. I would love to see way, way, way more true walkthroughs of homes. And I'm just going to talk residential real estate. Yes. I want to I see somebody interesting like a local celebrity walking through a house, talking about the different features of the house as they're seeing it spontaneously, mm-hmm. as opposed to like the whole realtor speak, which drives me insane. Yes. Um, you know, the crazy words that they invent for the different bits of the real estate. So yeah, so have someone weird and interesting and unique. Have the groundskeeper come in <laughs> and do a walkthrough with the realtor and and point out the interesting things. I love it. I love it. Give a real kind of breakdown of what it's like, not this fake. Yes. I think, yes. Good. I love it. All right. I throw another one at you. Yeah. All right. How about a movie theater? 
A movie theater. There's a couple of movie theaters that are near me that are old and interesting, and some of them have, are very historic. I mean, I want to know what movies showed here ten years ago, twenty years ago, thirty years ago, forty years ago. Do they have pictures of that? Do they have any old equipment gathering dust in the basement they can bring up and show us? Yeah. I actually had an opportunity to go backstage at a weird and wonderful theater in Boston called the Wilbur. And the Wilbur used to be a theater that was used for vaudeville. And some of the actors that have been on the Wilbur stage, remarkable, people like Ethel Merman and so on. And I went down into the basement of the Wilbur just because I was intrigued. What's going on down in the basement of the Wilbur Theater? Because this theater has been here 100 years ago. And there was these dusty, old, interesting like chairs and, and, and old lights and wow, this stuff is freaking awesome. They should like do tours of the basement of the mm -hmm. Wilbur. How cool would that be? I love it. Nostalgia, playing with that, that's coming back more than anything. How can you play with the nostalgia? Maybe people go back in mind because that's an experience. Oh, this was like this in the 40s and the 50s. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just a basement tour of the Wilbur prior to the show that you had to, you know, maybe buy a ticket for five bucks or whatever, or even make it free. The first 20 people request it can go down in the basement. I love it. Uh, all right, keep going. Go rapid fire. Truth and dare. Which one yeah. do you want first? Uh, truth. Truth. What is one thing you maybe done in your career that actually did not create fans, that maybe deterred fans? I should have done an email newsletter when I first started my business and I didn't. And so I really wish I had started an email newsletter. I'm not going to start one now, but <laughs> I really wish that I had started one back in the day. Started communicating with your fans. I, didn't, I did not have a good way for people to express that they were a fan of me in the early days. Mm, give people an opportunity to talk to you. Love it. Yeah. All right. Now for the dare. This is a game we do at the ballpark. All right. It is called okay. the sing-off. We do 2,000 fans against 2,000 fans each grandstand. When the song stops, we have to finish that song lyric. Okay? Okay. Now it's for you. It's a song. It's a band you know. It's one well-known song. So just when it stops, finish that song lyric. Here we go. <laughs> I will survive. <laughs> yes. I will survive. I will yeah. get by. I will survive. What's, do you know the name of the song? It's Touch of Grey by the Grateful Dead. Touch I of Grey by the Grateful Dead. That. All right. Now, they have so many songs that not everyone knows. That was a more mainline. I went easy for you. you I'm glad you went mainline because if I had failed, I would have been laughed out <laughs> of the Grateful Dead fandom. <laughs> you nailed it. You nailed it. All right. You've done so far in the fan, fan showdown. You've won. Truth and Dare, you've won. Now, I've been grilling you for the last 45 minutes. You get to grill me. This is flip the script. You get to ask one question for me. You're the host of Business Done Differently. Oh, okay. One question for you. Of all of the cool things that you've done with the bananas, tell me one of the biggest failures to grow fans. <laughs> it's been events that weren't geared necessarily towards our target demographic. So we did a haunted stadium at the stadium. We did a food truck festival. We did tap of the morning beer festival because you can't drink all day if you don't start in the morning. I loved it. I <laughs> thought it was great. Uh, but we started getting out of our element of we think we can be the best. Because you're, you're family friendly. 
Yes, we're family friends, but we're also, we have fun. We get on the edge. Uh, we get on the edge. We have uh, some French maids that clean the dirty, dirty bases. They're men at the end of the game. We have ring dudes, our guys in jerseys, like walking like a ring girl. We, we get on the edge late at night. We have bananas after dark. But yes, the baseball is a platform in the show. That's what we're the best at. And anytime we went outside of that element, I think that's- uh, I got it. I got it. I got it. So you need to stick to baseball- Baseball but, get, but get very, very creative around baseball and maybe not go far into something else. I got it. That makes yes, sense. I think that's where that's that's our niche. That's our focus. And so that makes that sense. Was, we've done other things that are filled. World's largest tickets were made tickets the size of posters. We thought that would be cool. <laughs> our fans are like, what are we supposed to do with those? So we've done other weird things, but uh, those are the biggest. I bet, I bet the fans love the fact that you tried something that didn't work. They're used to it at this point. Like the living pinata we did last year where we actually had interns in mascot costumes with kids with bats hitting them, throwing kids in the air. We've done a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, all right, let's, let's finish up here. Uh, if you could give a quick win. I mean, fans is a thing that we're all trying to understand more. And you really did a great job with fanocracy. But I'm fascinated again. We talked about a few ideas, the proximity, behind the scenes, the human connection. What's someone that can walk out right today and say, you know what, I'm going to create an, a fan today of our customer. What's something someone can do? So I think that any organization has an opportunity to take a look at how you're communicating with people right now. Maybe take a look at your website, for example, or if you have a store, however you're communicating with people and make sure that it is truly something that's focused on the people you're trying to reach. So in the case of websites, many companies use what I call gobbledygook language. They use this crazy made up language, you know, they use words like innovative and cutting edge and mission critical, or they use images, photographs that aren't even real photographs. They're stock photos. They're not real fans. They're not real customers. They're not real employees. They're stock photos pulled out of a catalog. So the first thing that we can all do, me included, every one of us can take a look at how you're communicating today and eliminate language that is not friendly to the people you're trying to reach and eliminate images that are not friendly to the people you're trying to reach. Yeah. I got one more for you. Sure. Um, fascinated by people standing out. What makes them different? What makes them stand out? What's one thing that you've done to be able to stand out in business or in life? So my, my dad, when I graduated from college, said to me, David, my biggest advice to you now that you're out of college is learn how to speak in public because you're going to have to do that no matter what your job is. And like, I was petrified about speaking in public. It was ridiculous. I was like, oh my God, this is terrible. And so I listened to him. And starting at age 25, I really started to take it seriously. I founded a Toastmasters club in Tokyo and didn't learned how to speak in public by being a part of this Toastmasters club. I spoke then at the companies I worked for and then in 2007, I started to speak professionally. I do 30 or 40 or 50 speaking gigs a year now. And now it's my art and I love it. And I, I have two speakers coaches that I work with mm. still to this day because I'm always trying to improve the way that I speak. And I can't even remember what your question was. Um, that was it. One thing you've done to stand out and that's it. Uh, uh, and Right, right. And so to me, it was really interesting that my dad, I don't know if he had a premonition or what, but my dad said to me, learn how to speak in public. I did. I was very careful about it. Very important to me. And now I make my living speaking in public. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you're spreading a very powerful message. And that's how I connected with you first for the, the new rules of PR and Grateful Dead and now fanocracy speaking. Thank in you. Language. So uh, you've inspired me. You've inspired our team. And uh, 
uh, I just want to thank you, David, for being on the show and everything you're putting out in the world. I appreciate that, Jesse. And I cannot wait till I have an opportunity to come and see the team in action, meet you in person, which I need to do as soon as humanly possible. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Dave. Appreciate you. Okay. Take care. Thanks for listening to Business Done Differently, where we believe whatever's normal, do the exact opposite. And that standing out is the best way to grow your business. For more information about the guest and topics covered on this episode, visit findyouryellowtux.com or shoot me a note at jesse at findyouryellowtux.com. Until next time, stop standing still, start standing out.